When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. In the aftermath of the conviction of Derek Chauvin, President Biden is calling on Congress to pass a police reform. We'll talk about that and much more with Rick Davis and Mark Begich and Representative Haley Stevens. And welcome to Sound On. My name is Jeannie Shanzano. I'm a Bloomberg political contributor. Joining me today, as always, is Bloomberg political contributor Rick Davis, as well as former Alaska Senator Mark Begich, who's a strategic consulting advisor at Brownstein Hyatt Barber and Shrek. So we were on the air yesterday, Rick, and of course, uh, covering uh, the the big news out, out of Minneapolis on the conviction of Derek Chauvin. And throughout the evening and today, reactions have continued to pour in. The president called the Floyd family, and then later he and Vice President Harris addressed the nation urging Congress to come to a consensus on police reform. And this was something that White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki reiterated at the briefing today, noting the president wants Congress to consider passing the George Floyd Policing Act, which already passed the House several months ago, but has been stuck in the Senate. But she also noted that the White House and the president want to give lawmakers space to negotiate on their own. We have sound on that. I think the president certainly sees this moment as an opportunity to redouble everyone's efforts in getting this legislation passed and move forward. Uh, but he also recognizes, having served 36 years in the Senate, that uh, you can't rush negotiations between Democrats and Republicans. Um, he's eager to have something on his desk, but uh, we're not here to set a deadline at this point in time. And we do understand, to Jen Psaki's point, that amongst those negotiating are South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, amongst others. We also heard on uh, from uh, from many on Capitol Hill, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who took to the Senate floor this morning and read the names of a number of black men and women killed by police officers and reminded his Senate colleagues that as important as the conviction yesterday was, the issue at hand is systemic, and the Chauvin conviction does not mean that the issue has been addressed or fixed. We have sound on that. We should not mistake a guilty verdict in this case as evidence that the persistence problem of police misconduct has been solved, or that the divide between law enforcement and so many of the communities they serve has been bridged. It has not. 
And that is also something we heard from a lot of activists who said yesterday was a start, but there was much more to do. So let me bring you in, Rick and Senator Begich, on this. Um, Rick, did the events yesterday change the calculation as it pertains to passage of either the George Floyd bill or any type of police reform in Congress this year? Yeah, I do think, uh, Jeannie, that it uh, simplified matters a little bit. And what I mean by that is if the um, um, verdict might have been different or the public action uh, significantly different, right? Uh, yesterday, the public re- reacted with kind of relief, right? There were um, uh, no massive urban uprisings of any kind. Uh, people sort of had a chance to take a step back from, uh, I think, what, what a lot of people were concerned about uh, an out-of-control situation. And now we can thoughtfully have a discussion about what kind of police reforms need to happen in a more benign environment. And I think by having people like Senator Tim Scott, a leader in the African-American community as a Republican, and Cory Booker the same as a Democrat, uh, this is a good start to open a dialogue. Republicans typically are a little cautious about doing things like police reform at the federal level. Uh, But uh, I think definitely the heat that uh, Senator Schumer put on him today is going to drive some of the action. And Senator yeah. Senator Begich, I just wanted to ask you on that point, um, what are the sticking points for between Republicans and Democrats on this Floyd bill? Well, here, first, I want to make one more comment about uh, yeah. knowing Cory Booker is on that team. You know, he's a former mayor, so he had to deal, as I did when I was a former mayor and now former senator, you have to deal with uh, police firsthand. You know, you understand the ground up of what is needed and what's not needed, where federal jurisdiction could be, where state and city jurisdictions could be. I think the sticking point is always kind of the global perspective from uh, the Republican side, and that is, you know, should this be a top-down approach or should it be a local control? Because that's where local police forces are at the end of the day anyway, controlled on. You know, this was, there's a way, for example, during the Clinton era, if you remember, the COPS program came into play, and that was bringing police officers into schools in a community, you know, community method rather than just a, a force method. And I think that was a, a way to start doing some reform uh, in a positive way. And I think that's what the two centers are going to have to do. They can't have a whole shopping list of federal government demands and requires this, but how do you give the tools for local communities, which these police departments, to be very frank with you, are usually overrun in the sense of the amount of workload they have and figure out how to balance that with what communities are demanding now, which is they want these officers to be working with the community, not just coming in and extracting people out, especially in uh, minority communities where there's clear data that says it's a high percentage. So I think it's trying to find the middle ground. And I agree that this moment is an opportunity. The challenge is, to be very frank, elected officials sometimes can never grab the moment and it passes them, and then they're on to something else. I hope they don't, and they grab the moment now and figure out how to bring a better relationship between community and police officers and the community at large. I think there's a there's a moment here. Senator, uh, to pick up on that, and while you still have your mayor's hat on, and I appreciate that distinction, <laughs> I think it's very important. There's no question mayors are the hardest working politicians in the country. And, uh, and, and so uh, obviously uh, Anchorage is not, you know, Minneapolis. There are a lot of different challenges for each city. But I wonder if you could drill down on that a little bit and tell us a little bit about what the nature of the relationship is in your first hand with the police department, because, you know, these conversations are going on in every municipality in the country today. 
right? I don't want to be the next Minneapolis. I don't want the next George Floyd in my town. What do I need to do to try and figure out what the cops are doing that, that, that is good or bad or indifferent? Um, how, how did you experience that? Yeah, no, and you know, here's an interesting statistic about Anchorage, 65th largest city in the country, the most diverse high school, the top three high schools in the country, the most diverse are here in Anchorage, 90 different languages are spoken, and there is no majority in our school districts and population. So that gives you a sense of the diversity of Anchorage. So in a, in a microcosm, they have a lot of the challenges that some of the big cities do in size. But the, the issue that I learned as mayor, and I brought those, uh, that knowledge base to the Senate was you, you have to give the tools to the mayor's office or local governments that they have the resources to expand from just a response police force, meaning they're responding call after call after call or dispatch is overloaded, working too many hours to create the community component. This is where police officers go out to the community to, to be listeners versus uh, people who are you know, just kind of picking up people. We also integrated, uh, We I went right to the head of the NAACP, and I said, okay, you got a lot of issues on your shopping list. You're going to be part of our training program now. You're going to come in with our new recruits and talk to them about what you see are the issues. Then we made sure that the police officers uh, also heard, you know, and, and I know the police officers did not like this part, but they did after they learned how it worked. They were going to have social workers come in also to be part of the equation of training. Because a police officer is not an extraction person only. They have multiple roles they play, and you got to give them the tools to do that. But on the flip side, the communities from the federal government, the federal government could do a lot with resources, no question about it, to help them get these more community-based uh, police liaison connectivity to the community, but be listeners. And this is, it's a, you know, you got to remember, police officers are paramilitary kind of design and you have to bring in this new approach which mayors do but then there's you know if they have hot crime issues they got to respond that's the number one thing they got to do so it's a resource issue and then a training issue that is critical from the day they start the academy not when they show up at the police department but at the academy and and to follow up on that, I, what I always hear from my friends in the criminal justice community on top of those is that, Rick, it's also a recruitment issue as well. And, and I don't know how much of that, Mark, you faced uh, when oh, you were mayor, but, the, you know, they say the difficulties. And I wonder today, um, as we think about what's going on and what's being covered and how the police are being represented, if that has become all that much more difficult for police chiefs and, and mayors around the country. I think I'll just give you my two bits on it. You know, we sometimes would have a thousand applicants for 15 positions. And just to get the qualifications we needed was very hard because there's a, a lot of high thresholds. And uh, so I think I would bet you recruitment is even harder today because of the level of people who may or may not want to go in law enforcement, not because they may not want to, but maybe the stigma of all this news now forces people think maybe mm -hmm. that's not the career they want. And that's that's too bad because at the end of the day, law and order is part of the equation. But a sensitive, well-rounded law and order is how you approach it. Absolutely. And anybody who was waiting for bipartisanship on this Floyd bill did not want to hear what Mitch McConnell had to say on the floor this morning. He didn't mention Chauvin. Instead, he jumped right into attacking the Biden administration. And we have sound on that. We have a president. 
who ran on protecting norms, flirting with proposals to hotwire the Senate rules, and pack the Supreme Court. This proposal is a Trojan horse to roll back the historic 2017 tax reform plan that helped spur big-time wage growth and the best job market in a generation. So, so again, that was Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, on the floor this morning when most of us were thinking about the Chauvin uh, conviction yesterday. He was attacking on infrastructure. So it, I think it, it really pales. Um, I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and I am here today with Bloomberg political contributor Rick Davis, as well as former Alaska, former Alaska Senator Mark Begich. And earlier today, as the nation continues to come to grips in the aftermath of the Chauvin verdict, Attorney General Merrick Garland said his department is going to lead a civil probe into the policies of the Minneapolis Police Department, including possible discriminatory policies and possible excessive force policies during protests. We have sound on that. It will assess the effectiveness of the MPD's current systems of accountability and whether other mechanisms are needed to ensure constitutional and lawful policing. Of course, that's just one. And I learned this today from our colleague David Weston's great interview. Uh, that's just one of 18,000 police jurisdictions in the country. And so, of course, it's going to take more than just one probe, which I think Rick, Rick Davis gets back to this question. In this interview, uh, David Weston was talking to a faculty member from John Jay Criminal Justice College, and she was saying, they, the Congress really needs to do something akin to what we did with voting rights. This is going to require not just local, localized action, but federal action. And so I want to bring it back to that bill that's going through Congress or sort of stalled in the Senate. Where is the sticking point there for Republicans and Democrats? Well, I, I, I would say that if you go back to, uh, you know, the conversation we were having before, uh, I think one of the jobs that the uh, Biden administration is trying to establish is to actually set a standard. You know, Merrick Garland's comments today weren't necessarily uh, focused just on uh, the MPD, the, Metro the uh, Minneapolis Police Department, but it sends a signal to all those 18,000 police departments that, uh, that, that, you know, we're going to look into it. And so I, I think part of it is the job of the White House to set that standard. And then on this legislation, I mean, I, you know, Mark mentioned it earlier, you know, his experience with the, uh, with uh, being mayor in Anchorage. I mean, sometimes it's tricky 
to, uh, to have the police department uh, lorded over by the federal government. And so, Mark, I'm kind of curious, some of the things you talked about uh, would you, that you did as sort of reform mem- measures in your police department, would you have wanted necessarily the federal government to create re- requirements around that? Or is it really the resources, the funding that, that would be important? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think what's important from the federal government is resources and general what I call baselines when it comes to civil rights, certain things of that nature. But how to operate a police department, you know, if you're operating one in Barrow, Alaska, in 40 below weather is much different than operating one in Miami in 80 degree weather. And I mean that sincerely because there's different situations that are occurring. You know, we, for example, in rural Alaska have a very high uh, alcohol abuse rate, sexual assault rate. So we have different needs that we have to focus on in regards to public safety. In the Anchorage urban area, it's a mixture of everything that's in any kind of community that you would see. So I think the federal government has a role to set when it comes to civil rights, those kinds of issues around uh, how uh, police departments should be operating with engagement with Uh, potential criminals or people they're pulling over, those kinds of steps. But at the end of the day, honestly, it's about resources and making sure uh, how it works. Because there's another challenge. You know, when I was mayor, we appointed the chief of police. In some communities, as you know, the sheriff is elected. And so there's a variation of how people are in charge of those departments and what jurisdiction they have or don't have. And so that's why resources at least can be, you know, uh, normalized, you might say, for across the country. And certain civil rights issues can be normalized. But how sometimes to operate those, it's very different community to community. Yep. And so, Jeannie, I think, you know, talking about your question related to this bill in Congress, the George Floyd Act, I think you see that debate going on there. What is the rightful role of the federal government? How much resources are we thinking to give to the police department to deal with these issues. And and this is a significantly different discussion than after uh, some of these attacks, and you've heard these movements sort of like defund the police. So I think we're in a much more constructive realm where you know we can talk about what the police departments need to be able to improve their mission and not punish them by taking away resources. That's right, and, and you know a big sticking point, as I understand it, between these you know that's the Scott bill that the the Democrats uh, were talk spoke out against last last year, and the Democratic bill that's up is this issue of quality immunity and should police officers be shielded from lawsuits the democrats are saying very very strongly that they should and that's in this bill that's held up in the senate and of course the scott bill did not go nearly that far and we heard i think yesterday from Mitt romney who has said he would like the congress to to think about bringing back that scott bill so it's going to be very interesting to see if booker and scott and karen bass who's done great work on this in the house of representatives if they're able to cobble, you know, something together. Um, Don't forget, you can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg.
Imperial 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. And I am Jeannie Shanzano here with Rick Davis, my fellow Bloomberg political contributor, and Mark Begich, former senator from Alaska. And I'm sure you both heard the really good news today out of the White House, where President Biden announced that on his 92nd day in office, the nation has met the milestone he set that months ago was almost unthinkable of 200 million vaccine shots. That's more than half of the adult population now partially vaccinated. And also, he said 80% reduction in the number of lives lost among people 65 years of age and older. He described this as an American achievement. But at the same time, he said, we have to continue to take precautions. And we have sound on that. We let up now and stop being vigilant. This virus will erase the progress we've already achieved. The sacrifices we made, the lives that have been put on hold, the loved ones who've been taken from us, the time we're never going to get back. And he also talked about this in the context of sort of a new page, if you will, in the vaccine program and rollout. And he took a lot of time to urge employers to give workers paid leave to get a shot and reminded businesses that under his American Rescue Plan that they can do that without any hit to their bottom line. And we have sound on that. The IRS is posting instructions for how employers can get reimbursed for the cost of providing paid leave for their employees to get vaccinated and recover from the side effects if they have any. So, Rick Davis, do you think that that is going to be enough to address what has been a real challenge for the administration and the public health sector, which is that people who are reluctant to get this vaccine, um, even though it's available as of Monday to all adults 16 years of age or older? Yeah, Jeannie, I think, you know, it's a really great question you asked because uh, 100 million people is a lot, right? You have to say, wow, successful after 92 days, as you point out, in office, much better than the 100 million expectation in 100 days. So, so I think, I think you know, everyone's thinking progress. And, and we know that um, uh, where Senator uh, Mark Begich is from, Alaska, they were really ahead of the curve on getting their population as a per capita uh, inoculated. And I'm, so I'm kind of curious if I could maybe throw to the senator You've, you've had a great track record in Alaska. Um, were there things you needed to do, and do you need federal paid leave to get everybody uh, uh, inoculated in Alaska that, that, that wants to be? Well, I think there's two things. One, we opened up uh, two ends of it. With our tribal community, they opened it up for you know 18 and above to get their shots very early. Then our governor declared the state the same way. So people would just get their shot. That's kind of the goal, right? Get as many as you can. Uh, as quickly as you can. I, I think I can tell you employers, you know, are always in a pinch right now, just keeping the employees they have because it's hard to get people back to work. And so having the paid leave is helpful. It's a small amount, but it's, it's helpful. But the other thing that I think is going to be the harder nut to crack, I'd be very frank with you, is 
you know, you have a percentage, and it's a fairly high percentage, even we have it here, and that is a percentage of people who refuse to get it because of the misinformation that's out there. And to be frank with you, you know, I've talked to conservative talk show hosts here in Anchorage who I know personally, and two of them have gotten their shots, and I've asked them to talk on their radio show about why it's important. And they got some heavy backlash from their listeners, and it's kind of like, just get the shot, quit complaining, uh, you know. But I think there has to be some other voices that are not, to be frank with you, the, the, the moderate liberals or the folks from the healthcare community, but people who uh, some of the naysayers uh, recognize and acknowledge and see that they are getting the shots too, that it's safe. Uh, you know, we got to give pharmaceutical companies a big score here because they did something that most people said they couldn't do. Get this much on the ground and in the streets as quickly as possible. And the, you know, the, the federal agency to approve it, FDA. So I think that's this last part is the hardest. We've got the first two thirds almost. It's the last third that's going to be hard because you got people who are just refusing for somewhat more political than health reasons. Because the health data tells you otherwise, period. So that's where I'm worried. In Alaska, we're, we're going we're gonna to hit the curve. We're, we're, you're absolutely right. We were way ahead of everyone, but we're about to hit the curve. And I think we're going to have a hard time getting that last third to get in and get their shot. Yeah, Senator, it's such a good point because the numbers we see, 20 to 30 percent of the population fall into that, you know, if you will, bucket of being uh, reluctant to get the vaccine. And you said, you know, perhaps they need to hear other voices. Do you think that former President Trump should have spoken out more forcefully on this when he himself had got the vaccine? Oh, absolutely. I laugh a little bit because he got the vaccine, didn't tell anybody. Why would you do that? If you're the leader at that point, he was the leader still of the country, you have an obligation. There's been times when I've sat in political office when maybe a vote turned away I didn't like, but you know now you gotta you got to administer it. you got to do with gusto and get things done. And in this case, he and his wife got the vaccine. And I think if he would have just got up and said, I did it, it's the right thing to do, and then, you know, unless you're a really anti-vaxxer, which there's a percentage, it's just for religious reasons and others, I get it. But that's not 30 percent of the population. That is a part of it is too politically uh, driven now, which is too bad. Healthcare should not be politically driven. Get the shot. And President Trump should have stood up and he can do it still today. But, you know, people, like I said, those two conservative radio hosts that I talked about, the backlash they got, they were shocked. And it's too bad because it's like the evidence, you have 200 million people who've been vaccinated. They're, they're not, you know, falling off the face of earth because they got vaccinated. It is better. So, yeah, I think, you know, and I know it's harsh me saying what I said about the former president, but, you know, you, you lead in office and you lead out of <laughs> office been in those positions. It's so well said. And Senator Mark Begich, Strategic Consulting Advisor at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. From your lips, we hope that that message gets out there loud and clear. Thank you so much. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg. Top 3 
Zero-Two is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from zero to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach zero Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I am Jeannie Shanzano, along with fellow Bloomberg political contributor Rick Davis, and really happy to welcome Representative Haley Stevens, who represents Michigan's 11th congressional district. And so, Representative Stevens, we were just talking about the good news out of the Biden administration today, this sort of report card, if you will, on COVID. But of course, your state has been particularly hard hit. So I wanted to ask you, um, how? what are conditions in the state at this moment? And do you feel like you've hit a plateau and things are getting better? Do. Uh, I think that we are uh, seeing a slight downward trend. But if you would have talked to me a couple of weeks ago, uh, I would have said that it, what we are experiencing in Michigan and, and still even right now, what we're experiencing is very alarming. Uh, there's a total flouting of public health guidelines, uh, particularly with the mask wearing and social distancing and in-person activities and events. We saw a lot of spread uh somewhat unintentionally occur in younger people. I'm talking Mm -hmm. high school students who didn't show symptoms and then spread it to their parents. So we're vaccinating. We're at a good rate. We're at about 32% of those 16 and up who are vaccinated. Great place to be, but still a long way to go. Congresswoman Stevens, I wanted to follow up on that vaccination strategy that Michigan has and ask you if uh, the Biden administration's plans to promote paid COVID leave uh, for people to make it easier for working uh, people to uh, take time off to get vaccinated, uh, what kind of impact that might have and what are the prospects for passage? Well, I was just on the phone today with a, a smaller manufacturer who is eager to get himself vaccinated. He just got his appointment. He's a uh, head of the uh, company. Uh, he's eager to get his whole uh uh, workforce vaccinated. He said, "Hey, I'd, I'd bring a you know a, a mobile site over here, and it's not as easy because of the the workforce that goes into administering the shot." So, I do think the the ease of getting shots in people's arms and encouraging them to do so. I know so many businesses are really eager to reward people for getting those shots and giving them the flexibility. And we certainly don't want to see anyone who's you know, working that more than 40 hours a week, a lot of times, right, in today's age, where even in Michigan, we've got a $9 minimum wage and, and yet just a little bit above $9. And yet, you know, we're trying to get higher than that. And so people are working two jobs and then they're taking care of things at home. So getting them and getting their employers into the space where people can actually get the vaccines is great. And people like that paid family leave. It's not just the, obviously the workforce, but it's also the small businesses. And we saw that from our first round of coronavirus relief in the CARES Act. So I think a lot of that's really promising. It takes burdens, cost burdens off our, our employers and it, it, it saves lives, right? It gets people vaccinated. 
Yeah, and Representative Stevens, um, it's such an important day tomorrow, and I know something that you care about, which is Earth Day. And we have President Biden bringing together so many world leaders and executives and union heads um, for this virtual summit. You're on the Education Labor Committee and also Science, Space, and Technology. What are you hoping the Biden administration has to offer? And we're hearing that they may be offering some ambitious goals for the U.S. What are you hoping that they offer? What are you hoping to hear? And we should note that obviously from Michigan, you've also been intimately involved with the auto industry. So could you talk a little bit about what you expect for tomorrow? Sure. And Earth Day has really traditionally been a day of an engagement, right? Uh, citizen engagement, step up and support science, step up and support sustainability, figuring out new ways to recycle and, and support sustainability efforts, ways for communities to come together. Look, I'm, I'm always optimistic about what's coming out of this administration in terms of trying to tackle big problems. And, and give it a listening ear. We know we're at a moment of reckoning when it comes to climate change and the overall stewardship of our planet and lowering emissions and really tackling CO2. It's not, no pun intended, being asleep at the wheel. I know that <laughs> even if it's not, you know, yeah, even if it's not it. Earth Day, you know, yeah, even if it's not Earth Day, you know, our automakers want to be at the table. That's why you're seeing GM, you know, give the path forward on their vision for an all-electric future and where a lot of the companies in my district, which has the largest concentration of automotive supplier workforce in the whole country, you know, they're humming to that beat. They want to go there, and we've got to talk about that with agriculture and the meat industry and aerospace, and not in a way that, that scares people, but it's also inclusive. But I would really say, you know, something that I've honed in on in my areas of jurisdiction as a member of Congress has to do with our sustainability and our circular economy and developing supply chains and pipelines for materials that we treat as single use, plastics comes to mind, right? You know, just throw out your plastic cutlery when really that could be being recycled. recycled. Now, the onus has always been on the consumer. When this, you know, when Earth Day came about and we started promoting rigorously recycling endeavors, we, you know, put Put it on the individual responsibility. Well, the back end is what's missing here. There's no sellers. Our municipalities are just sitting with tens of thousands of recycled goods, not just plastics all the time. Paper's another one. You know, aluminum, we've somewhat figured out better than others. And so I'm also, and I'll give you guys a preview, I'm introducing a bill tomorrow on plastic solutions as part of the co-chair of the House Plastic Solutions Task Force. And this is really an all-of-government approach to advance and awaken a supply chain and technology opportunities so we can reclaim a part of this trillion-dollar industry that's been sitting over in China for, you know, the past 20 years. Congresswoman, I want to give you a shout out for that. I used to own one of the country's largest recycling businesses, and you need to have the technology of all these various companies to come together and find ways to recycle and, 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 and actually repurpose this commodity basket full of uh, recyclable goods. And plastics is a great example. So kudos to you for putting a lot of light on it because you know, gone are the days of sending our recyclable material off to China so that they can burn it for power. It's just uh, actually uh, not a very virtual cycle. Uh, but uh, Jeannie mentioned uh, the Biden administration uh, really looking to make a big impact 
uh, with this climate summit coming up, and they're talking about doubling Obama's pledge on on greenhouse gas emissions. And I was curious, I mean, even though Michigan is looking like it's becoming green, you mentioned the GM announcement on uh, going on all electric future. Um, uh, what kind of businesses might be impacted uh, in Michigan? Uh, you have a lot of manufacturing. If, if there is a significant uh, reduction toward greenhouse gases by 2030? Well, look, if this pandemic taught us anything, big transformations usually don't just happen with the switch of a light. You, you know, you, you, you can set the big targets and, and obviously work across a multitude of industries to work to meet them. You know, listening to the UAW, for instance, and uh, the, the workforce and also the consumers themselves, and, and, and I ask that of the companies because obviously they're going to be customer driven and they're investing a lot in the R&D and the technology transfer. But if you look at the diesel fuel engine jobs that, you know, the, 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 the combustion engine jobs in this country, you know, in both those areas where they're, you know, relying on oil and, uh, you know, to run the car and to run the engine, it's, it's a lot of jobs. It's a lot of jobs. And so how do you equate, how do you transition over, how do you transfer? Does it happen with the switch of a light and all of a sudden people are left without jobs? It can't go like that. It's not going to go like that. It's not going to happen like that. It, you know, we, we very well for the rest of our lives could see the combustion engine in some capacity being on the road or in certain types of roadways. And I don't say that because I don't think we can hit these emission goals. I just think when you look at big cultures and large cultures, I mean, heck, go down to Cuba. What what year model cars are they driving down there? Now, that's a different <laughs> 57 <type> Chevys. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, everyone goes to gawk at the vintage cars. That's not us. But on the other hand, think about that. So in Michigan, you drive through the Woodward Avenue. You drive down Woodward Avenue. You've got Classic cars, people, this is a tr- long-time tradition. You drive your classic car out, you know, people give you a wave. It's really exciting to see people driving their old models. Are they also not going to be allowed to drive them? You know, I was, I worked in the Obama administration on the U.S. auto rescue. I was there for cash for clunkers when we traded in, you know, the low, the, the, the high MPG for the, or the, you know, trying to lower the emissions with, with the MPG that was coming down. But it's the, the reality is, you know, is that it, not everyone did that, right? And so these, we've got to set realistic benchmarks and goals, and 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 guide people along with them, guide populations. And my golly, you better have the voice of industry at the table, and not just the big three. But I'm talking all the suppliers, and I spend, I do this. I go every week and sit down with a small to mid-sized manufacturer, partly because I get to geek out with what they're making, but I also get to hear, and, and, and they're readying for this transition. You know, they're not blind to it. The suppliers are embracing electric. They're, they're diversifying into that. But anyway, I can, I'm not turning your show into my soapbox. We, we love it, Representative Stevens. Uh, we, we love it, love hearing all of these ideas. And the big climate summit is tomorrow. So I want to thank you so much for talking with us today. That's Representative Stevens from Michigan's 11th District, as well as Mark Begich. And of course, Rick Davis, Bloomberg political contributor. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg.
1202 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from zero to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach zero Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.